As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe... Did I tell you that I got uh, tear gassed recently? Uh, oh, my God. No, I th- I think I saw a tweet from you that kind of hinted at that, but I couldn't totally tell whether you actually did or whether you were just at risk of it or whether it was just in theory or you or your colleagues were. So I wasn't sure. So I you actually got tear gassed? Yeah. So uh, just to clarify, this is not the norm in financial journalism, but for those who haven't been following international news recently, there have been a a series of very big and historic events in Hong Kong. We've had these massive protests now, uh, two of which were very, very peaceful and very big. Uh, And then on one occasion, we had a protest that descended into I don't want to say violence, but a a little bit of chaos. There was a lot of police pushback, which I personally witnessed. And the police also fired rubber bullets and they also fired tear gas canisters. And it was sort of a surreal experience because all of this was taking place in an area of Hong Kong called Admiralty, which is sort of like a, a midtown Manhattan or maybe a Wall Street equivalent to New York. And so among all these big office buildings, including the Bank of America Merrill Lynch office building, which was very, very close to where all this was happening, you had these tear gas canisters being fired in the air as commuters were trying to get home. It it was pretty crazy. Yeah, I was uh, pretty struck by the images and obviously exactly that fact, because of course, I was just visiting you in Hong Kong last November, I think it was, and realizing that you know, this is just a normal business district that was utterly transformed and being looking at those roads and saying, hey, I was walking on those roads, probably looking for roast duck at one point, And then seeing the scenes that they had become was uh, pretty extraordinary. I think you did actually wander down that area looking. I, I'm pretty sure it was chicken wings and you told me about it. No, I literally did. Yeah. I'm not exactly. That's literally what. Yeah, that's literally what I was there for. All right. Well, the reason all of this was happening uh, was because of a proposed piece of legislature that was working its way through the legal system in Hong Kong. People refer to it as the extradition bill. And it was a new law that would basically allow Hong Kong 
residents or citizens to be extradited to China. And that was something that wasn't allowed before. And Joe, I, I don't know how much you know about the history of Hong Kong, but you're familiar with the um, one country, two systems principle, yes? Right. So after the British handoff uh, of Hong Kong back to China, the stipulation was that for several years, I think maybe it was 50, Hong Kong would get to operate as it generally does as something more or less like a liberal democracy with free speech and protest and free trade and all that. And so that even though on some level it's politically uh, now China, it is completely separate from a legalistic standpoint than the mainland. Yeah, that's a good summation. And I guess the thing to be aware of is there's a sort of deadline hovering over this idea of one country, two systems, and that is the year 2047. And that's basically the date when that agreement sort of lapses. And no one really knows what comes after that, but most people assume that they have a few more decades at least of sort of having their own legal identity separate to China. And when the legislature in Hong Kong proposed this extradition change, people were suddenly very worried, very up in arms, saying that this would bring that era to a close even sooner than they had expected. Uh, There's one more thing to note about this whole drama, and that is the the chief executive of Hong Kong is a woman called Carrie Lam. She's not elected in a democratic process, uh, and she's become something of a controversial figure. She was pushing the extradition bill. And on the day that we're recording this, she's actually just apologized for pushing it through. She's also paused the bill. So it's no longer winding its way through the Hong Kong legislature, but it's still very unclear exactly what is going to happen to it. Is it actually dead and gone for good? And needless to say, a lot of people are still very, very upset about the events of recent weeks, and in particular, the violence and the pushback that we've seen from the police. No, I appreciate this because like, I didn't even know, for example, that she wasn't elected. So I, I appreciate all of this setup because otherwise I'd be completely ignorant. Well, I I know you know this part, but Hong Kong is a very, very large financial center, and it's really the only international financial center within China or close to China, and that makes it very special. And its market, as I can attest to, having been here for seven or eight months now, is very, very unusual in, in many ways. So I thought, given recent events, we could have someone who not only is an expert on that market, but also has been pushing to change it in various ways. And someone who also has some very, very strong opinions on the future direction of Hong Kong and what the recent spate of protests might mean for that future. Like I said, there's so much I have to learn about this. So I'm very excited about this episode. I might get in a few questions, but I think a big part of me will just be sort of sitting back and hearing our guests speak because of how little I know. I'm very looking forward to it. Oh, I'm sure you'll come up with questions, Joe. You'll like this one, I promise. So (laughs) our guest for this particular episode is David Webb. Uh, He's a former banker. He's now an independent, I suppose you'd describe him as an activist investor. He runs a website where he sort of uh, researches various companies in Hong Kong and also writes down his thoughts on politics as well. So David Webb, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. 
David, when I was prepping for this episode, there are a lot of people in the Bloomberg Hong Kong office who already know you um, and are familiar with your work. And I was sort of going around and asking people uh, to tell me things about you. And I heard so many varied things. I heard that you used to be the chairman of uh, Hong Kong Mensa. Yes. I heard that you used to design video games in, in the 1980s. I was a programmer, yes. So, uh, okay, walk us through your sort of like early development. Uh, you were a video game programmer at one point, and eventually you ended up in Hong Kong. How'd that happen? Well, I was uh, writing books and games for the first generation of home computers in the early 1980s while I was still at school and university. And I did mathematics at Oxford uh, for three years. And then after graduation, I, I stopped coding and uh, went into the city of London in 1986 to start uh, corporate finance, working in a small merchant bank. Um, that was the year before something, uh, that was the year of Big Bang, in, uh, which was when uh, uh, stockbrokers and uh, jobbers, or what, we, what you would call market makers perhaps, in New York, they'd be called specialists, um, and merchant banks were all brought together under a regulatory reform. So that was a big uh, year. And then in 1987, of course, we had the um, crash, uh, the Wall Street crash, global crash. I carried on doing corporate finance in London uh, for two more banks. And then the third one, uh, Barclays, sent me out to Hong Kong in 1991 to do uh, IPOs and mergers and acquisitions in Asia, which I did uh, for them for three years doing an awful lot of travel on the company dime, um, Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines, South Korea, and so on. And one of the first B shares in mainland China, which was a, sh a B share then was a share for foreign investors um, that was listed uh, in Shanghai. And I left uh, that uh, firm in 94 and went to work for a local conglomerate for four years for a local family controlling shareholder, basically, and to advise them on their corporate structuring and transactions and investments. And then in 1998, uh, as the Asian financial crisis uh, rolled through to Hong Kong, having started a year earlier in 97, I retired. I, I haven't worked for anyone since then. Uh, and I set up website.com, which um, made use of some forward planning with my surname. And that was a way of giving something back to Hong Kong in terms of the expertise I'd built up in, in uh, the regulatory system for companies here, particularly listed companies. And since I was free of any conflicts, I no longer had any employer. I was able to write quite critically about um, the appalling corporate governance that we have in many parts of Hong Kong. And at the same time, I was pursuing my hobby, investing in small caps on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, uh, because uh, they were then and, and, and still are largely overlooked. Uh, and it's very hard to um, filter them for the value um, and for good governance. If you just filter for one and not the other, you won't get uh, decent returns. So the website is not for profit. I've never made any revenue um, and I subsidize it quite heavily to keep it going. And it has a big uh, database of who's who in Hong Kong and, and increasingly uh, elsewhere. And uh, I've been writing uh, content for it, looking at um, sort of corporate horror stories, because as I filter through the stock market here, uh, I can find... Um, Occasionally, uh, good companies, but an awful lot of rubbish as well. And some of those are bad enough to use for case studies on the need for regulatory reform. When you talk about the appalling state of governance in listed Hong Kong companies, what are the common themes that you see? What are the uh, 
what are the characteristics that people perhaps in other markets would be horrified to see or the things that people get away with until you uncover them? Well, the, uh, one, one of the underlying themes is that because most companies do have a controlling shareholder, and that used to be families mainly, but uh, since, since we started listing mainland Chinese companies, it's also government control. But because of that, the so-called independent directors aren't really independent because they're, only, they're, they're all elected by the controlling shareholders, so they're only as independent as the king wants them to be. And uh, that, that causes problems because a lot of them are just rubber stamps and they're looking the wrong way or that they're hired for their uh, ability to look the wrong way. So there aren't really the checks and balances that you might expect. There's also fairly low levels of financial disclosure. We only get full financial statements once a year and we get a condensed set of uh, half yearly statements. Um, and for the main board of Hong Kong, we don't get any quarterly financial statements except for a few companies on a voluntary basis and for ironically for mainland companies that have if they're listed in Shanghai or Shenzhen then they must also re report quarterly and and that gets reflected into Hong Kong there's lots of insider um, related party transactions um, and sometimes they are not disclosed as, as such so if an acquisition looks ridiculously overpriced or a disposal looks ridiculously underpriced and it's uh, and it's with a BVI company the owners of which are not disclosed British Virgin Islands, that means, um, then you have no way of knowing who's really behind it because uh, offshore jurisdictions don't uh, have to disclose, uh, in the BVI particularly, um, shareholders. So there's, there's quite a bit of that. Also, you, you find that when companies go public here, they may have um, skimped and saved on the controlling shareholders' uh, salaries as directors, but once they go public, they suddenly deserve a tenfold pay increase and so they can extract uh, money that way. So there's, there's a there's probably uh, if there are a hundred ways to leave your lover, there's at least that many ways to rip off your shareholders, and I've written about most of them over the years. So I'm curious, given that lack of information and disclosure, how do you actually go about researching Hong Kong companies? Because judging by everything that I've read, you you've been quite successful in doing this. So Bloomberg had a profile of you uh, a few months ago, and I think we valued your portfolio at, at something like $170 million uh, and, and also described how it had been outperforming the general market for some time. So clearly something is working in your research process. How, how are you going about that? Well, um, you, you can you can thank Janet Yellen's husband, George Akerlof, for, for the theory behind this, but it's fairly obvious that um, uh, he, he wrote a paper on the, the lemon problem and won a Nobel Prize for it. And, and basically, if you are an expert mechanic walking around a second-hand car lot, then you generally, you don't get warranties. You have to look carefully. And if you, and, and if you do, and you're an expert, you can find... Uh, carefully maintained cars that are underpriced because they're all discounted for the risk of being lemons, uh, and most uh, most of the good cars would never be there in the first place. So, in in, in uh, company terms, I look closely at the corporate governance um, of all the um, small companies and find a few of them that are actually well governed. And I get in the back seat usually because the the driver in the front is a controlling shareholder. So I have to you know be, be confident that uh, that they will be able to uh, deliver honest uh, returns and give me my fair share of the returns and it, but they they're on, they're all discounted for the risk of being lemons occasionally one of them does actually um crash badly but uh more often than not i've been able to uh, avoid the uh, most of the crooks most of the time as it were and uh, that means that 
I can outperform the general market by doing that. It's weird because when I think of Hong Kong, you know, I think of it as one of the main, obviously, financial centers of the entire world. So I would think New York, London, Singapore, Hong Kong, that's kind of about it, typically. Why are the standards so bad? So why is there this sort of corporate governance discount and an inability to essentially bring the listing requirements or the listing oversight in line with other markets where people don't have this overriding negative perception? Well, there's a number of issues in there. Um, First of all, Hong Kong is a very small geographic place with a population of 7 million or about 0.5% of China. So um, for all of the Chinese listed uh, managed companies that are listing in Hong Kong, they are in a different jurisdiction, which means cross-border enforcement is uh, fairly difficult. Uh, Whereas in America, it's such a vast um, economy and place that most of the companies that list in America are managed in America as well. And so it's probably a bit easier to hold people to account, although not, I would add, in the case of Chinese companies that are listed in America. That's another problem as well. And I never held out America as a bastion of corporate governance. It's got its own set of problems that derive from the, the race to the bottom that has basically ended in Delaware with very management-friendly um, company laws that um, tend to allow uh, entrenchment of managers to, to start behaving like owners and um, excessive pay as a consequence. And, and also, America tends to have fewer opportunities for shareholders to vote on things like related party transactions. Quite often, they're just approved by a board after hiring an advisor to say that they're okay. The UK overall has, in my view, better corporate governance than America and Hong Kong by some margin, on its main board at least, uh, not so much on uh, the newly created things like the um, alternative investment market AIM, which is um, a lawless kind of regime. And so, and also the the control structure has to be mentioned because you know it, continental Europe has the same issues: lots of families controlling most of the companies or governments, and then uh, it's very hard for independent shareholders to have any say, even to elect the independent directors, unless there is some sort of um, proportional representation system in the boards. So, if you looked at the Hang Seng Index at any point in time in the last thirty years. There's only been a um, a handful or less uh, of companies that don't have a controlling shareholder, including companies like HSBC, which um, tend tend to have better governance just because, well, A, they're regulated as banks in that case, but B, without a controlling shareholder and with um, good corporate laws that prevent um, things like poison pills and that you have in America, uh, you tend to get better behavior overall. And uh, the companies constantly... Uh, unless they're very, very big, they, they, they're constantly um, looking over their shoulder and um, making sure that they're delivering shareholder value because otherwise somebody will take them over and do it for them. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com.
Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So, David, you sort of operate in a particular niche in in the Hong Kong market, which is small cap stocks. I'd like to get to the big topic uh, in recent weeks, which is, of course, the extradition bill and the ensuing protests in Hong Kong. I'm wondering, do the events of recent weeks change your perspective on either the future of the Hong Kong market or the future of Hong Kong as a financial center? Well, it's been a fascinating time. Um, what, what we're seeing is all wrapped up in the, the overall situation with mainland China vis-a-vis America as well and the trade war. China has become increasingly confident in the last decade as its economy has grown and it's started to look outwards and uh, has uh, made uh, built, built islands in the South China Sea, launched an aircraft carrier, has been increasingly assertive over Hong Kong. Uh, for the first 10 years after 1997's uh, change of sovereignty here, they largely um, um, stayed out of sight. The liaison office um, on Hong Kong Island, which um, represents the mainland government, um, uh, they hardly ever appeared uh, in public at uh, events here. Uh, that's all changed, and, and now they, they are increasingly interfering in, in Hong Kong affairs. This um, extradition bill, although it was, we, we're told, um, conceived in Hong Kong, the amendment to the extradition bill, it was backed with gusto by the mainland when they realised this would give them the opportunity to basically close what they see as a loophole, but what others see as a firewall, and allow them to grab people from Hong Kong and extradite them to face charges in the mainland. That basically. It, it drives a tank through the firewall uh, between the two uh, systems, two jurisdictions, because Hong Kong has its own courts all the way up to the Court of Final Appeal, um, which are re- widely regarded as trustworthy. They include um, at least one foreign judge on on the Court of Final Appeal on any given hearing. And China, on the other hand, has um, secret, uh, you know, closed door trials, um, uh, no often no access to lawyers, uh, forced confessions, televised confessions. And, and a system which is um, very poorly regarded uh, globally and including in Hong Kong. And the public knows that. And the, the opinion poll that was done at the end of May by the University of Hong Kong found that uh, by a ratio of 4.2 to 1, uh, Hong Kong people don't trust the mainland courts. And what we're seeing is, is basically, uh, given that the legislative council here that makes the laws is, is now essentially a rubber stamp. The majority of its members are pro-government uh, people elected in often small so-called functional constituencies. I call them dysfunctional constituencies because they're, they're, they're things like licensed banks and licensed insurers and so on. Uh, often they don't bother having contested elections because there's only a small you know, 150-odd electorate of companies and they decide amongst themselves. Uh, but because of that rubber stamp thing, the only thing that stands between bad laws and unpopular laws and those being passed is the general public where if the issue is big enough, they will come out and protest against it in massive numbers. So that was heartwarming in a way that that Hong Kong people still are able to do that and and to come between the the chief executive and her, her rubber stamp legislature and stop that proposal, at least for now. The bill is still in is in the Legislative Council, and one of the most appalling things about today's um, purported apology by the Chief Executive, which is what she basically said, I apologise for the fact that you didn't understand this bill and I'm not withdrawing it. 
she wasn't really apologising for the bill itself. And it's, it's, um, it's not really sincere if you're going to uh, keep it hanging over people and just uh, wait for it to expire when the Legislative Council term expires in July 2020. So, you know, in practice, she won't, um, if she hasn't already um, entered the terminal stages of, of her position, um, she won't commit political suicide by trying to bring it back in July, before July 2020. But the right thing to have done to respond to public opinion would have been to withdraw it. Why can't she? It's because she's also appointed by Beijing, and when you are an authoritarian iron fist regime, you must never admit that you've made a mistake. You have to be be seen as infallible, and, and so Beijing won't let her uh, withdraw the bill, even though uh, she could. And I've been advocating that she withdraws it and refers the whole question of extradition and mutual legal assistance, which also could freeze people's money while they're being investigated, to, to refer all that to the Hong Kong Law Reform Commission, which um, would be able to uh, apply their minds, including the Chief Justice of Hong Kong, their, our highest uh, judge, and others, uh, to actually um, focus on the issues and decide whether there's a need to reform these laws, and if so, how. Can I ask a sort of a uh, very big picture question? When, I, when you see these images and these extraordinary protests uh, essentially trying to push back the tide of greater integration. And as Tracy noted in the intro, the sort of one country, two systems framework, that's only scheduled to last until 2047, so 50 years after the handoff. Is the goal to maximize the freedom of Hong Kong up until 2047 or is there a longer vision of hopefully maintaining some pressure and somehow after that year still maintaining some sort of notion of separateness? Right. So, so the joint declaration and the basic law only says that there will be no change for the first 50 years. It doesn't say that there must be change after that. And uh, this, of course, will become an increasingly important question in many areas of the economy and society as we get closer to 2047. We've got 28 years left. But I can imagine in about 10 years' time, with 18 years to go, people will get quite nervous about things like uh, mortgages and also simply about whether they want to, after they graduate, stay in Hong Kong to build their careers or move overseas. And after all, if, for example, you want to be a lawyer, you'd like to know whether you're going to be practicing under the common law legal system that we've inherited from the British or or whether we'll be practicing uh, in the Guangzhou People's Intermediate Court under, under mainland law. And so if China has not substantially reformed on its own in the next 10 years and started to open up into a pluralistic and democratic society, which I don't think uh, is, is on the near-term agenda, then people are going to get quite nervous here. I have to say I'm an optimist in the long run. Um, I'll be 82 in 2047. I hope I'm still here. And I think that there's, there's no way that China can continue to deliver prosperity to its people, which they will demand. Uh, without significant liberalisation in terms of removing the various restrictions on on the movement of capital, on the on the movement of people, uh, on what they can read on the internet, and and giving them some accountability at the ballot box as well. I just think that if you look at history and all experiments at central planning of large scale economies, they simply don't work. Whether it's outright communism as they tried from forty nine to seventy nine, or the current form of Marxism with Chinese characteristics, as they call it, it simply doesn't deliver the the prosperity because it uh, assumes that someone at the top knows best for everything and and allocates resources by uh, fiat. 
whether that uh, reform process happens smoothly, which I hope it obviously hope it does, I hope there's some sort of Gorbachev-type figure that emerges or, or a group of them that take China towards the sunlit uplands of capitalism, or, or whether we have to have an economic crisis um, big enough for the people and, ha- and, and sudden enough for the people to wake up to this and, and take their own initiative, I don't know, because when you look at the surveillance tools available in the internet era to, to the government there, they have tools that no previous authoritarian regime has, has had, uh, at least until about 10 years ago. The, the, the facial recognition, the constant surveillance of everything you buy and wherever you are with a mobile phone and so on. So they can, they can spot uh, patterns of potential disturbance uh, very quickly and, and try to stamp them out. So, so um, I don't know quite how that's going to pan out, but I hope I'm right that eventually, one way or the other, we'll get that reform. Uh, in which case, we won't be worrying anymore about our freedoms in Hong Kong because there'll be the same freedoms that China will be enjoying too. You mentioned the technological capability that China has at its disposal now, and we actually saw that on display when it came to how the Hong Kong protests were shown or I should say, not shown on the mainland. Uh, so, of course, we had the usual censorship, you know, uh, scenes of the protests on CNN and other international news networks were, of course, uh, blacked out and censored. Uh, we also had uh, particular words blocked on Weibo. We had, do you hear the people sing the song from Les Mis? Uh, yes. Blocked on Tencent's music streaming service. Um, Winnie, Winnie the Pooh was banned some time ago as well. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> because because cartoonists liken him to Xi Jinping. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I'm curious, how long can China really hold the visuals of an event as big as the Hong Kong protests at bay? Because, of course, as part of the liberalization that has been going on so far on the mainland, you do have more Chinese citizens who are traveling abroad, and you do have people who are able to get around the Great Firewall in, in, in one way or another. So are they fighting a losing battle on that front? Well, I've been impressed at how, how um, successful they've been at censoring the internet in China. I didn't think 20 years ago they'd be able to do it, but um, they, they have. But you're right that since they're allowing their people to travel overseas uh, in the tens of millions every year and thereby get exposure to foreign media and uh, read about things, then uh, the the truth eventually starts to filter in. But you have to remember, though, that there's an awful lot of effective brainwashing going on within the Chinese system. You're, you're, t- you're brought up not to question the party's um, infallible judgment. So you, you start off with a, well, just look at the West, what a mess it's in. They had this global financial crisis, and then they elected this weird president who's a sort of reality TV guy and you know, and then look at Brexit and look at all the Euro crisis. And surely the mainland, you know, leaders, the, our, the Communist Party of China is, is better at this. They protected us from all of these things. Aren't we lucky to have them? So that, that's the kind of messaging that uh, gets prominence when there isn't any effective alternative messaging coming from the outside uh, into the Chinese intranet. But um, at the end of the day, I think that money talks louder and people in people's uh, lives uh, in their personal uh, wallets. And so, you know, what in the end um, brings down authoritarian governments um, is is not great ideals, but the price of bread, effectively. Uh, that's what started the Tunisian spring. It was inflation and high unemployment. And I think that you'll, you'll potentially see some sort of financial crisis that would, that would trigger 
reform in China if, as I say, if the leaders don't start reforming on their own pretty quickly, pretty soon. Because for a long time now, the the quality of the GDP growth that you read about has been very poor. It's it's been building extra roads and airports and exhibition centres that aren't actually economic, but uh, keep people busy and generate GDP while you're doing it. The moment you stop uh, with that so-called, the, the Austrians economists would call broken windows, um, then suddenly you find you've got rather low quality of, of GDP because you haven't been given, giving people the freedoms that they need to, to make their own choices. And uh, there's also been a huge credit bubble building up in the shadow banking system in China, which um, includes a lot of so-called wealth management products, which are basically repackaged um, poor quality loans sold as investments through banks. And the government uh, has got a sort of growing potential liability there, even though they're not guaranteed by the banks because they've been sold that way and because the banks are owned by the government, you may end up with a massive need to um, for people to swallow those losses or to bail out the banks and let them take those products onto their balance sheets. So I, there's a number of different ways that China could get into a financial mess of its own making, not even beginning to think about what um, the US could do in the ongoing trade war, which I think could develop into a broader financial war. So far, it's all been about tariffs on imports from China. But what about the fact that at the same time as America is quite rightly complaining that the Chinese government subsidizes um, a lot of its economy and distorts the allocation of capital? Well, guess what? A lot of American investors are financing the same government-controlled companies by investing in things like PetroChina and uh, China Telecom and so on, and Air China, and vir- virtually all the big old economy stocks are listed in Hong Kong or even in New York and are invested by Americans. And it's possible that that could become the next, uh, the powers of the president through the Office of Foreign Assets Control could be weaponized against that by requiring US persons to divest themselves of those stocks. It has been tried against a, a Russian aluminium company called Rusal, and it was very successful in terms of the devastation it caused to their share price because the Treasury basically said that the controlling shareholder was too close to Vladimir Putin and that Americans must stop dealing with the company and sell their stock and bonds within three months. I think it was three months. In the end, the order was reversed after there was a change in the shareholding structure of, of Rusal and it was taken off the list. But uh, uh, it was uh, quite devastating for that company, and, and it could be applied in a, in a more broader way under the guise of protecting the U.S. Uh, national security and the economy. Just to bring it back to uh, the, the recent protests, you told me uh, earlier this week that, that you yourself had attended the protests. I'm just curious, what did you think about them? What did you think about the atmosphere? Uh, Two million people on the street, according to the organizers' estimate, on, on the most recent Sunday's march. What was remarkable to you about it? What did you observe? Well, it was, it was damn hot. 90% humidity and 30, 32, what would it be, about 90-something Fahrenheit in American terms. And, and it took a long, long time to make that walk. But you have to um, applaud the peaceful nature of Hong Kong protests, generally speaking, and particularly uh, uh, on um, Sunday when the police were given orders to stay away. And, you know, not a single uh, shop window was broken. Some of the protesters at the end were cleaning up their own rubbish. It was... Um, a very um, uh, peaceful and and um, uh, and also heartwarming to see people of all ages and all professions, many of whom had never come out before and ha- had their um, heads counted or voices heard, 
coming out and saying enough is enough. And as long as they keep doing that, as was said many times, the, uh, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. They will stand in the way of draconian laws um, and uh, hopefully hold Hong Kong together um, until uh, China itself um, starts to become a uh, more open and uh, freer place. David Webb, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. That was great. So, Joe, I hope that wasn't too Hong Kong-centric for you, but I I do think it, it gets to some very big developments for the global economy, one of which, of course, is what is China going to look like as it sort of develops its own economy and its own power. And it, it feels like there's this huge debate about how it, it could go either way at this point. You know, it could sort of double down on the authoritarianism or it could, as David pointed out, maybe actually liberalize. Yeah. Well, first of all, there's no such thing as to Hong Kong for me because you know how much I love Hong Kong and I wish I lived there and I'm jealous <laughs> that you live there. So that's never an issue. I thought it was interesting that David was an optimist because I feel like the conventional wisdom on the direction that China is going and then ultimately the direction towards which Hong Kong will be dragged, most people I would say are far more pessimistic and only see the pace of authoritarianism accelerating and the surveillance state only getting deeper into people's lives. So I did think it was interesting that he actually had a more uh, optimistic view on it, although it didn't sound like his optimism was based in any trends other than the fact that the current trajectory would be ultimately unsustainable and collapse in some way. Right. And speaking of unsustainability, there was one other thing he mentioned, and you know he didn't really frame it as a a pessimistic thing, but I think it could be interpreted this way. And that's the notion of in order for Hong Kong to avoid having unfavorable laws passed through uh, its local legislature, basically the people have to mount these massive protests every time because the legislative system itself isn't really up to the task anymore. You have a basically a biased set of lawmakers and potentially, well, I think they ended the ability to filibuster a, a while ago. So it's it's really up to the general population to um, stop what they see as, as bad or unfavorable legislature. And I wonder how realistic is it that people are going to be marching every Sunday? Yeah, it does seem unrealistic. It's interesting because like some of the Hong Kong experts that I follow on Twitter were sort of skeptical that the people of of Hong Kong still had the appetite to come out and protest like this. And I guess there had been a view, and again, I'm speaking as like a real outsider tourist here who has no real information, but I guess there had been some question of like, well, do Hong Kong citizens really want to do what it takes to preserve their existing freedoms and fight for them, or are they resigned to, look, eventually it's all going to be one country, one system anyway. And so... You know, it's still, as you said, it remains to be clear. Will will people continue to go out on the streets every time something that impinges on their freedoms pops up in the legislature? At least it's a possibility. I mean, it's hard to replicate, but that will be the uh, that'll be an interesting thing to watch. 
Yeah, and in the meantime, there is this oddity that Hong Kong sort of continues to operate as normal, even though, as as David mentioned, there's 28 years to go until 2047 now, the, the deadline for the one country, two systems idea. But you can still go into a bank and get a 30-year mortgage. And of right. course, people are still signing on to long-term business contracts. So I, I guess there are explicit assumptions embedded into those types yeah. of contracts. So it's interesting. Yeah, it'll be really interesting. And uh, let's definitely record another episode in 10 years from now <laughs> when uh, when there's only 18 years. Oh, I thought you were going to say in... in in 2047. No, well, let's do that too, obviously. Yeah, okay. But, uh, you know, we could do one every five or 10 years as it gets closer to see if some of these financial instruments, if the risks that emerge around the year 2047. Well, I wonder, are there any like volatility curves that go out that far where we could start to see? Uh, <laughs> that'll be interesting, right? A volatility event, yeah. Yeah, really long dated <laughs> options on the Hang Seng stock index to see if they start reflecting risks around the year 2047. Anyway. I'll take a look. I'll see if those are available for you. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. You can also follow David Webb. He's at Webb with uh, two Bs, HK. His website is web-site. Again, Webb with two uh, you can find all his research there. And a uh, big thanks to my Bloomberg colleague, Benjamin Robertson, uh, for helping us organize this particular interview. You can follow Benjamin over at BMM Robertson. And be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. And the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And... Check out the new home of Bloomberg Podcasts on Twitter at the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.
Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.